0: is good. And in 1 John 4 it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Now this is a little spiritual treasure which God has given me, some gave it to me some years back, and I want to share it with you. God gave it to me as a rule to tell how, whether a doctrine is from him or not, whether a blessing that I may receive, or an emotional experience I may have, or a miracle I may think I see, or anything else, is of God or not. And uh, some Christians, of course, can't profit by this for the simple reason that they are static, they have had no new experiences, and they're not going to have any if they can help it. And they have no crises, no epochs, no advances, they never circle and fly higher, they're satisfied to beat their wings fast and buzz around low, they're not going up there where there's any danger, so they can nod and wish it was over. But uh, you that are seekers after God who are troubled and uh, concerned uh, about your spiritual lives, uh, this message is for you. I hope that's all of you here tonight. That you are seekers after God's best things, that you are ready to hear anyone who offers help. There are some people who are troubled, they are really troubled in their spiritual lives. And they read the Bible, but that doesn't seem to help them. They don't seem to be able to find themselves. They're troubled, and they're ready to hear anyone, and that is one danger. I don't like to see anybody too willing to accept things. I like to have them do what the Bereans did, examine the Scriptures, to see if these things be so. I never trust a man who gets converted too easy. Or too easily, I should say, if I want to maintain my reputation as knowing the English language from a hole in the wall. But uh, if, um, if a man gets converted too easily, the chances are you can unconvert him just as easily. If you, if you can stampede him into the kingdom, you can stampede him out. I like to see a man just a little bit stubborn and hard to deal with. And then when he gets in, he's just as stubborn and hard to deal with uh, by the enemy. That was Paul. Paul was a stubborn man, and he wasn't easy to convert. But when he got converted it was a tremendous thing, and he never went back. Now uh, some, I say, are eager, and they're looking after some new thing. And of course on the radio you hear everybody and his brother John lecturing and talking and um, giving messages. Well, that's right, it's all right, the radio is a good medium of communication. But uh, you have to use your head and your heart, and uh, you have to find out whether what this fellow is talking about is right or not. Just the fact that he gets up there and talks fast and sounds pious doesn't mean one thing in the world the devil can come as an angel of light. So you've got to learn to know an angel of light from an angel of God. You have to learn to know pseudo-truth from truth. Well. Uh, There are those, I say, who are willing to take up with new doctrines. And there are those who are willing to seek new experiences if somebody else comes along and demonstrates they've had one. And there are always those who are easily moved by miracles. I have never been. I have seen God do some miracles or near miracles, I think, in my time, but I have never been much convinced by miracles. Uh, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets and the apostles and our Lord, they would not believe even if a man rose from the dead. So miracles are secondary proofs of anything. And yet miracles move some people tremendously. And if somebody can come along and do a miracle, they'd just believe anything. Well, now I want to give you a rule divided into about seven parts, but this will be a brief sermon, I hope. Here is the rule. How does this affect my attitude toward and my relation to the following? Now anything, whatever doctrine I begin to get interested in, whatever uh, new fad, new religious fad comes my way, whatever religious experience I may seem to be having or have had, check it. You dare to check it. In fact, you're under orders to check it. Check it by asking, how does this affect my attitude toward and my relation to these? The following. First, God. That new doctrine that has come my way by some fellow who perspires and talks unctuously. Uh, All right, uh, now he's got his doctrine. What does that doctrine do for God? Does it make God great or small? Does it make God necessary or less necessary? Does it put God where he belongs and bring glory to him, and does it humble me and show me how little I am and how great God is, or does it uh, obscure God and draw a veil across the face of God? Whatever makes God less, or less important, or less wonderful, or less glorious, or less mighty, that isn't of God. Because the whole purpose of God in redemption, of sending the Scripture in the first place, and in redeeming men, is that he might be glorified among men. The glory of God is the health of the universe. And wherever God is not glorified, that part of the universe is sick. Hell is sick because God is not glorified there. Heaven is abounding in glorious health because God is glorified there. Earth is halfway in between, sick and well, because only some glorify God and the rest don't. The glory of God is the health of the universe. And the sound of the anthems of praise to God Almighty is the music of the spheres. And therefore, any doctrine, any phase or, or, or emphasis of doctrine, any experience that I may seem to have, any miracle that I may seem to have seen, if it doesn't make God big and keep Him big, and make God indispensable and wonderful, then put it away and dare to stand and say, I'll have nothing to do with anything that diminishes God. Then, Christ, how does it affect my attitude toward and my relation to Christ? Because Christ is who he is, and what he is, he is and always will be indispensable. And he is and always will be necessary to the point where I must have him. And any teaching, any experience, any fellowship, any activity that makes Christ less necessary to me can't be of God. Now, you've had experiences, you've gone to the altar, you've, been, you've prayed and you've been blessed and you've heard teachings and emphases given here. And uh, you've heard them given by men with their breath in their nostrils. The fact that Dr. Brown said it doesn't make it true. The fact that I said it doesn't make it true. The fact that George Klein or Walter Post said it doesn't make it true. The fact that your Bible teachers have said it doesn't make it true. We can be mistaken. You've got to test us as well as everybody else and search the scriptures and know, has our teaching made Christ more wonderful to you? Is Jesus Christ bigger and grander and sweeter and more indispensably beautiful now in your life than he was before? If he is, you have every good reason to believe you've been hearing from God. If he's less glorious and you've become attached to men, then he isn't. The, the teaching you've had is bad, or at least it's been given in a bad way. Any teaching, any experience that comes to you that makes Jesus Christ any less necessary. I say and repeat, is not of God, because Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary. He is the divine imperative. He is the one without which we cannot live. We must have Him, and we must be in Him, and He in us. If it is God, your dependence of, it is of God, your dependence upon Christ will increase, and Christ will become sweeter and more wonderful all the time. Now, I don't say He will become sweeter every day. I don't say that he will become sweeter as the days go by. We sing that song and I don't believe it half of the time I hear it, I don't believe it most of the time that I hear it. The same old deacon will come and he's the same old deacon and every second Sunday morning for twenty years he'll sing sweeter as the years go by. And he's the same sour, sulky, stubborn uh, old guy that he was before, only a little balder, that's all, and a little more wrinkled just the same mean old Christian that he was twenty years ago, and you tell me that Jesus is sweeter as the years go by. No, if that man is not moving along. Let's not sing it if we don't mean it. I'd rather sit as mute as the harp on terror's walls that the poet wrote about and never croak an amen than to, than to lie to God and the people. But if, you, if he is more glorious every day... Why, it's no harm in saying so, and I believe in coming out and saying so. I believe that we ought to practice again uh, boosting our preachers a little bit. Some of you Christians that have sat and looked at your pastor, your young pastor, with cold level eyes for the last two or three years, and you're beginning to pray the Lord will move him. If you had boosted him a little with an occasional friendly amen, he might have been a better preacher than he is now. He would have been a better preacher. A congregation can make a preacher. Don't forget that. congregation can take a young fellow just out of Nyack or Simpson, and uh, the first thing he knows, he's preaching over his own head. He's doing better than he thought he could do. Why? Because he's being boosted from the congregation. But the sermon tasters will kill any preacher and don't care who he is. The sermon teacher, particularly the old boys that heard Simpson, the ones that say, I heard A. B. Simpson in my day, well, A. B. Simpson has gone to be with his Lord, and he's left his work in hands that are not as big as his, and voices to voices that are not as eloquent. But uh, he's dead, and we're alive, and we got to do the best we can. And so the young fellows that come to be pastor of your church, maybe he isn't as deep as you say. But if you were as deep as you ought to be, you'd put up with him a while and pray him through and love him, and if you could find one little squeak to, to appreciate you, go tell him so. And he'd go home feeling good and say, well, if that dear old brother believes I my sermons are all right, I thank you, Lord, that I'm improving a little. You could help with a man, and you the superintendent wouldn't have to be playing checkers all the time. the just checker playing, you your Reverend so-and-so's here and Reverend so and so's here and he plays checkers. He jumps over so and so and gets to so and so and he plays checkers all the time. That's a district superintendent's old heartache. That one fellow is in Mueller Junction and he's there two years. and The people don't pray for him, they don't say amen, they don't trust him, they don't love him. They sit there and wonder about J.D. Williams or somebody they heard century years ago, half of a year, century ago. And they were great men, but they're gone. God's taken them and crowned them up yonder and said, You work enough. Come up and rest. And these young fellows have taken over. So they got to get that fellow from Mueller Junction and take him over here to Osceola Mills and put him down there. And so the poor fellow has to play checkers. And boy, he gets underpaid. If I had that job, I'd win 40000 a year in a big car. <laughs> that isn't part of the sermon at all. And it isn't in the notes, but I wanted to get that out of my system. Well, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is is indispensable, he is preeminent above all, and any experience, any interpretation of Scripture that doesn't make him big and great and wonderful, it isn't of God. For God wants to make his Son glorious, and the Son wants to make the Father glorious, and the Holy Ghost wants to make the Father and the Son glorious. And so anything that comes to you, if, if an archangel with a wing spread of forty feet and shining like a neon sign were to come down here and stand among these great Douglas firs and tell me that he'd just seen a miracle on me to come, I'd want chapter and verse. I'd want to know I want to know he was from God. I'm not running after any will o' the wisps. Of course, I've bothered a lot of people. They wonder why I don't get all worked up about them when they come steaming in. I'm not going to get worked over a man with his breath in his nostrils. Here's my book, here are my two knees, and I'm still able to bend them. And when I get so old and rheumatic I can't bend them, I can stand up and pray. God Almighty hears his people pray, and He, I have a line open to him. When people tell me that the Lord told them to tell me something, I say, well, my line is open to God. Why didn't he tell me? And I reject it, unless it obviously makes God wonderful and makes Jesus Christ beautiful and then I'll give it an ear. earth, but that doesn't happen very often. Well then, this new experience, this new interpretation, this new preacher, th- this new emphasis, uh, how does this affect my attitude toward and my relation to the scriptures? Are they more or less precious to me? A woman told me, I was trying to think where, where that was, and I can't. It might have been in Toronto. And she said, it might have been here, I doubt it though, but I think it was in Toronto. She came to me and said, Mr. Tozer, I'd like to ask you a question. She said, I'm troubled. I said, what? Is your trouble? She said, well, our pastor. She said, I belong to a church, and she said, the pastor has uh, he, he's uh, developed and he's gone ahead and gone forward and he's gone so fast that he tells us that God's given him new revelations that are not in the Scripture, and that he wants us to divest our minds of all that we've learned and follow him. And that we'll be sinning if we don't follow him, that the Scriptures, he's got revelation that's beyond the Scriptures. Now I told her in a nice scholarly way, but the sum of what I told her was to tell him to go get lost. And go back to the word of God, no man will ever be able, I trust, to persuade me to follow him unless he follows the Scriptures. Here's the book, here's the book, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to the law, it's because there's no truth in them. He that hath the the dream, let him tell his dream, but he that hath the word, let him speak my word faithfully. You can always check with the word, brother. If, if, if this new experience doesn't make you read the word more, it's not of God. If it doesn't make you meditate on the truth more, it's not of God. And I don't care how good you feel, if you feel so good you can, you feel brand new as the Camp Meeting song used to have it, you're still not being blessed of God. But you say, is it possible to get an emotional experience that isn't of God? I should say so. Entirely possible to get emotional experiences that are not of God. But I believe that true experiences carry an emotional overtone. And for that reason I have no objection whatever to emotions, as I've tried to tell you. I believe the Lord's people ought to be the happiest, most radiant people in the world, and I believe they ought not to hesitate to speak right out and say amen when they feel like it, if they feel like it, if it's not just a habit. If it's a habit, of course, it's just so much dry wood. Well, what do these experiences, how do they affect my attitude toward the Scriptures? And then how do they affect my attitude toward myself? Whatever comes from God diminishes myself and glorifies God, and makes me less and less self-confident. Whatever comes from God humbles me. Whatever comes from God makes the flesh intolerable. But if it comes from the flesh, why, it pops up and uh, makes us feel superior and makes us look down on other Christians. You ever meet these Christians with their nose elevated at a 45 degree angle from the plane and uh, from the level field? And uh, they'd smile down at you from their Empyrean heights and say, You do not understand me, brother. Just pray about it. Then they go away looking like St. Francis. But uh, all they had was a bad case of pride. It was just pride grown bad, grown, grown cancerous. No, no. If it's of God, it always humbles you. If it's of God, it makes you appreciate your fellow Christians that much the more. And it makes you appreciate the humblest, poorest Christian in the whole congregation and makes you love that Christian. Well, self, anyhow, puffs up and makes us look down on other people and makes us feel pity for them and smile down on them. Never put yourself on a pedestal, brother. In you there dwells no good thing. I don't care who you are nor how many degrees you have, nor uh, anything that you might say or have justly said about you. In you there dwells no good thing. And any experience that is of God, any doctrine that is of God, certainly humbles my flesh and brings me down lowly before him and makes him great and makes me little. And then how, does this, these, how do these experiences or how do these new doctrines or emphases or whatever they may be, how do they affect my relation to other Christians? Uh, are other Christians dear to me or less dear to me? Are we drawn to them or are we uh, the opposite? Whatever brings separation in spirit from others of God's children can't possibly be of God. Now you would say, do you not believe in separation? Yes. I believe that if uh, your pastor is teaching that the bible isn't the word of god, christ isn't the son of god, that uh, the that the scriptures are are not to be trusted, that they're only partly true, and that a new birth is an old fashioned idea, that the blood doesn't cleanse I say the thing for you to do is separate yourself. I wouldn't give one dime to support a lazy preacher who reads books written by liberals and then tries to preach them to the congregation. He couldn't get one dime of my money. I wouldn't give him a Lincoln penny, not even a dull old one, not one. But uh, if if uh, the, the fellow loves God, uh, I'm going to fellowship with him. I can't possibly. Now, you may not want me back after I've said this, but I'm coming, God wills. Anyhow, but um, uh, I can't possibly take the position that the Alliance people have it made. Brethren, we don't have it made at all. Some of us Alliance preachers can well sit at the feet of the denominations. That is, some brethren in the denominations. Not not the big old liberal denominations, but there are saints. I was in a Presbyterian church over in a city in New York here not so long ago. Well, you know what that Presbyterian preacher said to me? Oh, he said, I got home late last night, and uh, I, I slept in till six o'clock. He said, I'm so sorry about that. He slept in till six o'clock. How many of you land preachers get up and get on your prayer bones by six o'clock in the morning? You can learn from that Presbyterian preacher. I've met a lot of them. I know Methodist preacher. I don't know how many, but I know this one anyhow. This Methodist preacher, why, well, he's blessed of God, and so blessed this young fellow. They've put him down as far as he can get because he certainly does pour on the gospel and shuffle him off into a corner, God bless him. But I can learn from that bright-faced young man. I can learn from people, and I want to learn from people. And I don't want to ever get that hide-bound, dyed-in-the-wool conviction that we Alliance people have it made and that when the Lord comes, he'll take us in the first installment and come back for the Methodists. And the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the rest of them, you know. No, no, my brethren, we're all one in Christ Jesus, all one. And I didn't know till this afternoon, and I was with him all of last year and all of this year, twenty-two days, and I didn't know till tonight, just before supper, that he was a Free Methodist. <laughs> huh? Now that's what I like, a man that doesn't go around telling about we, us, and our And our marvelous denomination and our beautiful movement, oh, brother, don't forget this. God will let a movement die and he'll throw it on the fire if it doesn't keep close to the blood and close to the truth and close to God. And if it doesn't keep Christ in it and keep right and keep morally sound and doctrinally sound, he'll let that movement die and he'll let the alliance die.